the optimal life. Hello, China. Hello, Nate. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, what a name. That's such a unique name, China. Yes. Did you enjoy, did you enjoy growing up with that name? Uh, I used uh, my middle name is Chris. It's spelled weird. It's K-R-Y-S. But I went by Chris for a lot of years just to avoid the, you know, I, I wanted to be less conspicuous, especially, you know, during my active substance use years when sometimes my illicit behavior was attracting the attention of said law enforcement officers. Uh, having a unique name was definitely not an advantage at that point. How old were you during those years where you were getting into that substance hmm. abuse? Um, I started getting into trouble when I was 16 and continued that until I was about 32. And what kind of substances? Where does it start and how does it evolve? Mm. I started with my uh, what eventually became my substance of choice, um, which I love heroin. So I was I found that very young and I decided I was going to specialize in that. So heroin. How old were you when you first did heroin? 16. You did heroin at 16. Holy yes. Cow. Yeah. How do you get introduced to that through some other uh, bad actors? I take I, it. Uh, you know, I you know, again, we're going to talk about my story, but I uh, was around a lifestyle in which substances were a normal thing. So um, they were around, you could use them if you wanted to, there was not a whole lot of stigma in that environment against using them. In fact, it was almost um, encouraged to be able to work long hours and and tolerate discomfort and, you know, and numb, numb yourself to some of the uh, unseed unseemly things that were going on so well, what is it what is an experience um you you t do heroin what is the experience and how long does it last oh in the beginning yeah or like at the end because those are two very different things well so tell us about tell us about both yeah yeah in the beginning the the substance gives you exactly what you think you want so in my case um i was running from a lot of complex trauma that i had experienced it um, made me not as reactive to my trauma sensations. So like hypersensitivity, hypervigilance, uh, startle reflex. So it, it, it made me more normal, I thought. Um, I was able to tolerate some of the really uh, yucky things that were going on, um, which was uh, human trafficking at that point. So it was basically a reaction to an environmental situation. Um, and it worked incredibly well for a number of years. I, uh, you know, it produces euphoria, you feel, you know, amazing. Um, and then you just kind of uh, stay comfortable for about four to six hours. And uh, the dependency and addiction sneaks up on you. Um, little by little, it works less and less and you have to use more and more and because this is an illegal chemical, the, the things you have to do to get it and the places you have to go to procure it, um, you know, they put you in harm's way sometimes. And so you're adding to the trauma experiences. You're adding, you're mm -hmm. stacking the deck on the negatives in your life and you're starting to deplete, deplete the positives because good, healthy people, they don't really like to be around people like that. <laughs> So I was losing all of the healthy influences in my life as my dependency to opiates uh, grew. So you mentioned 
you're 16, 17 years old. That's the age too where you started being trafficked. 14. You were being so trafficked. So I have I have 14. I have human trafficking in two phases in my life. I was um I'm in Ohio and uh there was a fairly high profile case in Summit County in the 70s uh and I was a part of that. Um there was a prominent businessman, you know, well well embedded in the social um, I don't know, the social culture of our area at the time. And uh, when he got arrested in 1979, and I was one of the people that he was trafficking. Um, but I was not the only one, there were many dozens of us. And um, he ended up getting arrested, he went to, um, he got convicted, and then he went to prison. What, is it, stand- what, what does that look like, China? You're 14 what- years old, how does it happen? Oh, no, that happened when I was four to nine. That was very young. Fourteen. Four to nine. Four to nine, you started being trafficked. Yes. Four to nine years old. What what in the world does that mean uh, when you're four or five, six years old being trafficked? What does that look like? Um, Well, you know, if you're the one experiencing it, you have to understand that traffickers don't start with the trafficking. They start with grooming and they start with adapting you to being uh, comfortable with uncomfortable situations and they, they, they hook you. They know what four-year-olds want to do. They know, I mean, this, this guy had a basement filled with like those little novelty toys that they have. Uh, like if you go to, if you went to Kmart and yet you put the quarter in the little plastic horse and then the, the little kid rides on the horse or there's a carousel, he had these things. He had, I remember he had a space invaders machine and I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. So you go to a place that you enjoy and then little by little creepier and creepier things start happening until it is actual childhood sexual abuse. And then, um, you know, sharing that with other people to curry business and political favors. So this person was grooming you at a young age, making you feel comfortable with toys and candy and gifts and stuff like that. Like every kid likes Yes. And then when is the first memory with this man that you realize this feels different? What was that? Oh, I mean, I'm not going to go into any details of that because that's unnecessary. But, um, you know, there was definitely a shift where I realized in my very young mind, oh, this is something I really don't like but I do like this other stuff. So I guess I'll just tolerate this. And it was, and I also wanted approval. This guy would, he would lavish attention on you uh, and make you feel like a little princess um, if you did what you were supposed to do. Did your parents, were your parents around? My my mother was around. um, My father was there, but he was, he was working. This, you got to remember, this destroyed my family. Like in 1979, when this came to light, uh, no one knew in 1979 what to do with someone who had experienced this. And so the the suggestion as a nine-year-old was, you know, it's not happening anymore. Uh, lift your chin up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move forward. And you never have to think about this again. But they, they didn't really think about what it was going to be like living with the head full of knowledge I had as a nine-year-old that other nine-year-olds didn't have. And, and, this, and how that makes you different from your peers. <laughs> and this predator would then, once he was done doing what he was doing, he started bringing friends. Yeah. So 
you know, it was the seventies. They had the rec room in the basement and there was parties and, you know, these activities would happen at these parties. And when you say trafficking, that's where the financial piece comes in, right? They're paying well, him. It, it's not, it, I have no idea if there was actually cash involved. I do know that there was business and political favors. Okay. So there was some kind of financial or personal incentives that they yes. were being passed back and forth yes. in exchange for these people to do horrific acts to a, a minor. Yes. Oh my God. So at nine years old, you're being told to move forward, but you're carrying with this, these nasty feelings every single day into your teenage years, correct? I knew that I was different, but I didn't, I couldn't articulate what made me different from other kids my age. And when I was uh, becoming a teenager, about 14, I started figuring that out. I was like, oh, I know what I know that other people don't know. And that got me right back into trafficking again. Not with the same group, different group this time. Different group, different group. How does that, how does that happen to a fourth? Parents are sitting there. We've got teenage kids. You've got a 12, Mm -hmm. 13, 14 year old kids. And they're listening to this going, that can never happen to my child. Oh, it's, um, it's far more insidious than people uh, think. And I think a lot of the anti-trafficking media campaigns kind of paint a, a light on who can be a victim of this. And it's absolutely not true. Right now, there is a huge, um, a, a huge problem in Ohio with familial trafficking, with trafficking within the family unit. And it, it the, the, the cues for vulnerability are economic instability, um, you know, that it may have happened to your parents or grandparents generation. So it's very normalized. Um, it could be like, oh, what, you know, we we need more resources. We need to uh, procure an illicit substance. And this is a, a, way, a manner of getting that. So, you know, I can't really give you what makes somebody vulnerable. But I will tell you that um, attached secure parenting that is involved at, um, at pretty much every dimension of your child's life Um and giving them the tools to talk about um, things that are happening with their body, things that are going on in their mind, and being a safe person to talk about that. Um, I don't think we do a great job. I think we minimize it as parents. I can say the same thing being a parent myself. You just assume it's not going to happen to your kid. and <laughs> Unfortunately, um, kids are exposed to things like this far more frequently than you would imagine. Oh, well, especially with all the social media, the TikTok and the f- Facebook, Instagram, all this stuff. Only fans. It's so easy. It's a predator's <laughs> it's a predator's dream to go on a social media app. It's so easy to get a hold of. Well, once they had to come to a, a party to, to meet you in somebody's basement, now they can do it within three seconds. Yeah. There there's um I'm part of a survivor's advisory committee for the collaborative to end human trafficking. And one of my survivor sisters. Um, her entire trafficking happened online. And when we say trafficking, I, I think mm-hmm. there's a, a misnomer or misconception because, and I've thought about it too. Sometimes I get confused and I look at trafficking as the ch- almost like a kidnapping, even though okay. we know it's not. That's that's that media stigma. I that's, mean, that's the media that, stigma, that's, right? Because yeah. the, the trafficking could be happening. Your kid goes to school, your kid comes yeah. home, your kid goes to a friend's house, they come back for yes. dinner, they go to bed. And it's happening in that in that sequence. It's happening within this normal day that looks normal on the outside. It's happening right underneath our eyes. 
Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> it certainly is. But yeah, um, you know, the federal definition of trafficking is, is uh, enticing someone to um, use sex or labor. So there's labor trafficking as well. And uh, to uh, compel that with force, fraud, or coercion. And then in the state of Ohio, we expanded the definition to include uh, compelling someone by substance use. So if somebody gets you dependent on substances and then makes you provide trafficking services uh, so that you can have, you know, the substance you're now dependent on, that's now considered trafficking as well. I'm curious your take on this because at Thrive, uh, at your company, you guys deal with so many different issues from trafficking to substance use, abuse, recovery, and, and several other traumatic type of events that people have yeah. gone through. When you look at that guy, I'm sorry? We deal with complicated people. <laughs> yes. And when you look at that guy, whoever he was back in the 70s, for example, the one that was trafficking you at five, six, seven years old, mm -hmm. is a person like that able to be rehabilitated? I, you know, I, for a lot of years, I, I carried a lot of... Uh, anger, you know, and didn't really know how to process this uh, over the years. And part of it has been my work in peer support and meeting other people who were, uh, you know, on a sex offenders registry list. And um, I have changed my perspective that most people can be rehabilitated. Most people um, are, are doing this because it somehow it became their best option. And I, you know, as a former substance uh, user, I, I can relate to that. Like I, I can realize I understand why I use substances and um, I'm glad that I, uh, I moved away from them and that I've been able to develop my recovering life since then. But I do believe that the vast majority of people can be rehabilitated. Um, I, in my particular case, um, my my trafficker got out of prison, moved to another state, bought a boat and continued his trafficking in international waters until he screwed up one day and um, and took two five year olds to a, uh, a hotel when the babysitter who was procuring them couldn't make it to the marina. And um, the FBI was or, or the, the federal uh, law enforcement was. Um, they knew he was doing this. They just couldn't charge him with anything because it was not in their jurisdiction. Uh, but he did get arrested again and he did die in prison. Jeez. I'm surprised that that's your answer because then to your point, the example that you just gave, to me, that seems like that would be a very common theme. You get out, maybe you get some rehab, you get some therapy, you want to maybe start anew. But there's something inside these people. They're so sick. They're so demented, a lot of them, that they yeah. almost, it's almost like they just cannot help themselves. Is that an accurate, is that a fair assumption or am I being too harsh? I think you you may be, again, going with what you may have learned in in um, Lifetime movie stories, ha Hallmark movie stories. I don't you know watch that, Hallmark movies, China. A very sensationalized version of traffic. I don't watch these Lifetime stories. I watch real stories. Okay, so the... The vast majority of trafficking is much more subtle than that. Um, you know, uh, one of the most frequent um, ways of trafficking is a couple, a romantic couple who have developed substance dependency and 
the, you know, one of those partners will say, hey, you need to go out and do this so that we can get some cash so to buy what we need. And so they, as a bonded couple, engage in trafficking. But if you look at it from a legal standpoint, one is the trafficker and one is the victim. (laughs) So let me ask you, um, how do you then, as you're going through your teenage years and into your 20s, now you're probably addicted at this point to heroin. How do you break the trafficking cycle? When does that happen? Mm. Well, um, my my trafficking and my substance use uh, both continued simultaneously from 16 to 32. And in that time, I had become a mother um, and I desperately wanted to be a good mom. I knew that the things that were in my life didn't deserve to be in my child's life. And I was trying uh, everything I knew how to do to leave those things in the past. But I was having difficulty um, committing to it. So I would do it for a period of time and then I'd have an episode of return to use or um, needing money and going back into sex work to do that. And okay, um, so you're getting paid too. you and whoever's running the operation are both getting paid. At the end, when I was after I became a mother, I was no longer being trafficked. I I was doing sex work because that was the skill that I had acquired at that point. I didn't really know how to translate my skills into a legitimate enterprise quite yet. So that took some practice. Um, But I did I did continue with my substance use disorder and. Um, I ended up pregnant again. And the day that I found out I was pregnant um, and they knew that I was using substances, I was eligible for like a higher level of integrated treatment support that I had never received before. I went to gender specific trauma informed care and I got to spend 90 days just kind of letting the dust settle and and uh, and and feeling some feelings for the first time and then making a plan of how we were going to tackle this and small digestible chunks so I wouldn't get overwhelmed. And then I got out of that treatment and I got into some recovery housing um, with my with my children. So it was, um, you know, the beginning of my family coming back together and me learning new skills. And um, there was, you know, I always say my 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 first trick, as we called them, my first trick was when I was four and my last was when I was 35. So I entered recovery when I was 32, but it took me, there were a couple other little incidents. I remember um, my baby got sick and needed some medicine that insurance wouldn't cover. And it was $900 and that baby was going to get that medicine. And so I went back to some of my old skills to get the the cash needed to buy that medicine. Another time I, uh, you know, my transportation had broken down and I needed a chunk of change to do that. So there were a couple incidents that I went back and kind of had a return to to that lifestyle, but um, they were, I was definitely moving away from it. I, I had, I knew better. I had, I was starting to develop new skills. Um, but yeah, and that, my story is not uh, uncommon for, for many trafficking survivors is, uh, you know, we don't make a clean break. Nobody, the, the, the police come in and put you in a safe house and then you live happily ever after. There is a huge process of disentanglement from that entire lifestyle, which becomes very culturally um, surrounding every facet of your life. And not only were you trying to disentangle from that complicated lifestyle and and that dark lifestyle, you're also trying to disassociate from the heroin. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that had to be a whole different huge lifestyle changes. (laughs) Right. So when you're coming off of that at 32 years old, 
-hmm. What does that look like in the first days, weeks, months, and even years? How do you break was, that? What are you doing? I was terrified. I had 16 years of trying to stop using and, and I had a lot of experience failing and not a lot of experience being successful at it. So, you know, the, one of the recovery maxims is a day at a time. You just take it a day at a time. And in those first days, you don't even take it a day at a time. You take it a, an hour at a time or 10 minutes at a time. Like you, you can, you can go from, I'm committed to my recovery to there is no way I can't use in the next 10 minutes very, very quickly. Wow. So you just, you know, but you, what, just like I had a lot of things stacked up that made me understand why I used because of some of the things that I had been through, I, I started to um, remember those bad things and stack the deck in the terms of the positive things. I've got good people around me. I'm in a safe place. I don't have to do this. You don't know how to, you don't know how to exist with these crazy chaotic feelings that are coming up for probably for the first time in years. But I've got good people who have my best interest at heart, and I'm going to allow them to help me. And that's the hardest thing is accepting that help. So community is key. Mm, yeah. The opposite of addiction is connection. Powerful. I like this. Opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And that's not mine. That's from a Johan Hari, who uh, who wrote a book called Chasing the Scream about mm. about chasing about addiction. And, and that's uh, kind of where you guys come into place, right? That's yeah, Thrive that's Peer exactly Recovery. exactly it. Yes. Talk to Here's us a little bit about your what you guys are doing and, and who are the people? I know we talked about it briefly, but give us some details of the types of people that you're really helping. What are you, what are you doing? So uh, Thrive Peer Recovery Services offers peer support um, to anyone with a behavioral health disorder. So that's anyone with a substance use or a mental health challenge. Um, at all levels, it can be mild, moderate, severe, or way off the charts. And the goal is, is that someone who's been there and done that and speaks the language and bought the t-shirt um, can help be a recovery navigator and um, a safe person to have a safe conversation while you're exploring your options, just like I had in the beginning. Um, I, I never tell someone what to do. I, I give them what I see are their their next steps from here. And then I let them choose. And then I make sure I walk alongside them. I can't do the work for them, but I can make sure they're not alone while they do it. What's what's a common pitfall or, or a struggle that you see across the board? Is there something that always stands out that really makes it challenging for these people to stay clean? Um, I see a lot of people go back to work because they need money and uh, they haven't really learned how to cope with distress or criticism at that point, or they may work too many hours so that they can make that those dollars um, and put themselves in a very, uh, you know, where they're not sleeping and they're stressed out. Um, so I see return to work. I see relationships. I see people, um, they get into recovery and they want to, they want to immediately pair bond. And uh, early in recovery, we're still kind of unhealthy people and unhealthy people usually find each other. <laughs> And so early recovery relationships are strongly dis, uh, dis, disadvised, but um, a lot of people ignore that because, you know, people are uncomfortable being with themselves sometimes. Now you're going on about almost 20 years, correct? Yeah, 19 years, 19 and a half years. At this 19 point. and a half years of being clean. Does that include no alcohol, nothing? 
I, you know, I define recovery as a process of change by which an individual improves their health and wellness, lives a self-directed life and strives to reach their full potential. And I fully, as a peer supporter, embrace the multiple pathways of recovery. So I always say I am in sustained recovery and I've been in sustained recovery um, since uh, September 29th, 2003. I don't go into too many details about what and how that practice comes into place because I find that if I tell you my, the ingredients of my recovery, um, somebody may compare their version of recovery to it. And I have seen over the years, many people do recovery in different ways. And I don't want to diminish anyone who maybe does it a little differently than I do. So I don't pin um, you know, clean, sober, those are the, you know, clean is good for laundry and dishes. Like it's not a really good descriptor for, for people. Um, you know, so I am in that process of change, which every day I commit to improve my health and wellness, live a self-directed life, not a judge directed, not a drug directed and strive to reach my full potential. So you can be in recovery and mm -hmm. you can be recovered and still enjoying certain substances. Based upon what you're saying. I had a problematic relationship with heroin and cocaine. So in my case, I don't do any of those. Um, right. I don't I don't use, um, you know, I, I, I can't say I don't use mood or mind altering chemicals because I drink caffeine. And, uh, you know, I have a behavior, I have a, a mental health diagnosis. So I take mood and mind altering chemicals to to stay in my right mind. So right. again, there is a lot of stigma inside the recovery community against the use of medications to help people. There are medications for opiate use disorder like methadone and buprenorphine. And there's a lot of stigma against that. So that's why I keep my definition of recovery um, very broad um, so that it can be a safe place for anyone to take shelter. I certainly don't want to um, put someone off and have them think like, oh, I'm not in recovery because my definition doesn't fit within someone's narrative. It's, it's not it's, one size fits all clearly. And that's what makes your services so unique. Not. Yeah. Makes it very unique. Uh, we're getting close to finishing. I, I wanted to ask, again, back to the parents and the kids. To me, that's the most critical thing that we're dealing with right now. You've got young kids. I've got kids. And um what are some of the, the, the things that as parents, we should just be looking for to make sure that our kids are not only doing well, but, but make sure that they're not being exposed to uh, dangerous people, mm -hmm. traffickers, mm -hmm. drugs. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the common things that they should look for? Well, going back into those trafficking risks where I said a safe, attached, attuned parent in their life. Um, I, I would say caregiver. I'm not even going to say parent because sometimes it may not be a mother or a father. It might be an aunt. It could be a brother. So um, just one adult that is on it and is brave enough to have complicated, difficult, somewhat uncomfortable conversations about substances, about sex, about um taking care of your physical and emotional well-being and your environmental safety and mm. and asking questions you know a lot of times as a parent i feel like oh I'm, you know maybe i shouldn't ask this because i'm going to get up all in, in my teenage kids business but um those are the questions you have to have you've got to talk about what what you're encountering online in the gaming community in twitch you know all these things just make sure you know 
um, know where your kid is getting their information. You know, are they, where are they going online? Who are they talking to? Um, these are things that are really important. It's not a matter of like being a helicopter parent at all. It's just basically saying, look, you're going to run into some things as you grow and develop that um, you're going to not want me to know about because you're going to think I'm going to have a reaction to it or I'm going to be like, what the, what the heck? But these are exactly the conversations we need to have. And I don't know how to do it perfectly. And I don't expect you to know how to do it perfectly. But I just want to, I'm going to ask these things on a regular basis um, and hope that we spark conversation about what's going on. That's that's perfect. The risk of sounding like a crazy helicopter is so heavily outweighed by the reward that your children stay healthy and safe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. China Darrington, uh, Thrive Peer Recovery Services. We'll make sure we link you in the show notes. Wishing you guys all the best. Say hello to Brian and uh, continued success to you guys. Thank you so much for having me, Nate.